like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Nahum. Nahum is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Nahum is not an easy book in the Bible to find. It's tucked in among those last 12 books of the Hebrew Scriptures. If you're in the book of Psalms or Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn left, right, turn right. If you're in Matthew or Mark, turn left. You'll find this little book of Nahum. It's small, three little chapters. Let's see, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you're in Zechariah, that you're close, just turn left a couple pages, uh, and uh, you'll find the little book of Nahum. We're going to read a couple of verses. Nahum is one of those books of the Bible that, that doesn't see daylight very often. Your Bible might be blinking a little bit if you've t- turned to it. And here it is in this bright room, Nahum. We're going to read a couple of verses in just a few minutes. Um, he is out in the building attending to some other things, but you should know that tomorrow is uh, Pastor Scott's birthday, and it's a big one. Zeros. Not, not multiple zeros, but a, a zero, zero in it. So you wish him a happy birthday, because tomorrow he's, he's getting old. He's getting old. It's been a year since the United States uh, military withdrew all of its remaining forces from Afghanistan, and some of you remember the uh, news stories and the images that took place. It was disastrous. The Taliban took over Afghanistan faster than anybody ever expected. Even the Taliban was surprised at the speed with which they uh, recaptured the country, and thousands and thousands of people uh, fled, and many, many were killed in that a horrible transition. Do you remember the pictures from the airport in Kabul? People uh, uh, went to, to the airport desperate, desperate to leave, and the Marines were guarding the perimeter of the airport. People were clamoring to get onto planes, even some of the, the desperate people clinging to the airplanes themselves as they were taking off. It was, it was a horrible, horrible to see. Most of the news coverage was dedicated to what would happen to the Afghans who had helped the United States military translators or those who were part of the provisional government. There are estimates that the United States uh, government left 62,000 Afghanis there uh, vulnerable to retribution uh, from the Taliban. There was not as much coverage given to uh, Christians who were in Afghanistan in 2020. Estimates are that in 2020, there were about 10,000 Afghani believers in Afghanistan, and things were as bad for them, if not worse, than for even the people who had cooperated with the United States military. World Watch is an organization that every year ranks countries based on how difficult it is to live there as a follower of Jesus. For the last 20 years, North Korea has been number one in the list, that North Korea is the hardest place in the world to live as a Christian. This past January, Afghanistan was named first, now uh, surpassing North Korea in the amount of persecution and trouble for followers of Jesus. If you're interested in learning more about what happened to some of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, I recommend to you a podcast. The podcast name is called Recorded. 
Uh, and if you have an hour or so, maybe on your commute or while you're folding laundry or walking your laps around your neighborhood, I recommend that you listen to this episode of Recorded. It's called Escape from Kabul, and uh, you will be challenged and uh, interested in what you hear. Let me tell you some of the things that I learned about. The, the podcast focused on a man by the name of Luke Anwari. Luke was in medical school when he heard some South Korean Christians praying. He Actually, at first he thought they were Buddhists because they were Asians, um, but then they told him, no, no, we're Christians, and he asked them for a Bible. Uh, they were too afraid to give him a Bible, but they, asked, they invited him over to uh, their house and their apartment. You can come uh, tonight and we'll read the Bible together if you want. And he, they started with the Gospel of John, and Luke read the Bible over the course of two years, and at the end of two years, he became a follower of Jesus. The time he became a follower of Jesus, the United States government had invaded Afghanistan. The Taliban was not in, uh, in um, ruling that country, and, uh, but it was still dangerous. He didn't tell anybody that he had become a Christian. Um, it was illegal, actually, to convert under the uh, regime there at that point in time. So he told his wife, and he found one or two, just a small handful of fellow believers. Most of them were foreigners. Some of them were Afghanis. And they would get together, and they would um, meet and read the Bible and pray together. Well, he was betrayed by somebody. He doesn't know uh, who, because one day the Taliban, the uh, government officials actually came and arrested him and took him off to prison. While he was being arrested, his neighbors came out and, wished, and shouted at him, telling, them, telling him that if they knew about his defection from Islam, they would have stoned him a long time ago. He spent several weeks in uh, prison. He was beaten by the, uh, his fellow prisoners who thought they'd get special benefits for beating a Christian, and he was beaten by uh, the guards there in prison. His worst seven days were uh, seven days he spent in solitary confinement in a room that was too small for him to stand up straight or lay down flat in. He was released. He's not exactly sure why he was released, but he was released, and uh, he discovered that his in-laws, while he was in prison, tried to arrange for his wife to divorce him so that she could marry somebody faithful they, uh, to Islam. They did not know that she had become a Christian, actually, uh, too. Uh, uh, Luke and his wife, Sarah, fled from Afghanistan. They were out of the country for a number of weeks, and then they returned for a four-year period of time of a fragile life. They lived in various places. Luke worked various jobs. They moved 11 times in four years because they'd get phone calls in the middle of the night. This is the Taliban. We're coming. We're going to bomb your house tonight. So they'd run. He also uh, continued to cultivate, Luke did, his friendships with other followers of Jesus, and they would meet late at night, uh, starting at 10 o'clock, and going for a couple hours. They'd read the Bible, and they would pray together. Luke was supposed to be at one of those meetings in November of 2014 when the Taliban found out about it, broke into the meeting, shot several of the people, including the children that were there, and burned the house down where they were meeting. That's when Luke and his wife, Sarah, and their children fled to the United Arab Emirates. He's been living there since. He met fellow uh, Christians, Americans who are followers of Jesus. And Luke, actually, for a number of years from the UAE, was organizing what became known as the Afghan House Church Network. Um, for a week at a time or long weekends, Afghanis who were followers of Jesus leading house churches 
would fly to the UAE or fly and meet Luke in India, and he would do Bible training. He translated several uh, books, Christian books, and he would give them to them and articles that they would store on their computers. He was the unofficial bishop of the Afghan House Church Network. In 2021, many of these followers of Jesus who were in Afghanistan decided in faithfulness to Jesus and for the sake of the future of their children that it was necessary for them to change their official government identification. Every Afghanistan citizen has an electronic ID card. Um, You scan uh, the card that they have and, and on the phone, the device that you scan with, it would show you information about them, including their religion. And these followers of Jesus decided that it was time for them to change their official designation from uh, Muslim to Christian. And they did. And it wasn't actually as difficult as they anticipated. And then the United States announced that we were withdrawing all of our troops from Afghanistan. The Taliban rolled in. It is to your honor, if you're a member of the Taliban, to kill someone who has defected from Islam. You shoot first and ask questions Never. You remember the coverage? Thousands of people fled. They ran. This is, uh, they would call Luke, these Afghan pastors scattered throughout the country, would call him, what should we do? What should we do? And Luke said, run, run. Throw away your Bibles. Throw away all your Christian books. Erase your laptops, your hard drives. Get rid of everything that you have. Run. They ran to the city of Kabul. Kabul fell faster than they ever thought possible. And many of them lived there for a number of weeks some still there, but many of the, the ones that, that Luke knew uh, lived in Kabul trying to get on a plane out of the country, but also trying to escape the, the Taliban that was um, a roaming the streets of Kabul. At one point in time, Luke and his American friends were supporting 60 families, trying to find every night for them a shelter, food, uh, a place um, that was safe for them. It cost about $10,000 a day to try to, to, to care for all of them. Uh, they were eventually able to get hundreds of families, uh, hundreds of people out of the country. Some of them in the United States, some of them are in Europe, some of them are in Iran or Pakistan, some of them are in Brazil, places where it's at least somewhat safer to be a follower of Jesus, but there's still many there. And nobody knows really the state of the church in Afghanistan. I want you to imagine for yourself for just a minute that you are at the airport. It's your job. You're at the airport, Philadelphia, BWI, and you're there to meet a group of refugees who've come from Afghanistan, fellow followers of Jesus who somehow got out, and there you are to meet them. 17 of them get off the plane. What are you going to do for them, and what are you going to say? Well, we are a generous and compassionate and thoughtful people. <laughs> We're going to give them some hot food. Here's some chicken corn soup. You'll love it. A warm shower, a place to sleep where they'll be safe. Some of you, you'll wrap your arms around them and say, welcome, I'm so glad you're here. Were to go out in the church that these people have needs, we'd take a special offering and you would give generously to it. Someone would say, here's my car. They can use it as long as they need. That's the sort of congregation that we have. But eventually you're going to have to say something to them, these fellow believers, and help them put 
what they have experienced in the context of their faith and integrate it into what they understand the Bible teaches about God and his goodness, his plans, his purposes, his sovereignty. What are you going to say? It's not just the 17 Afghanis that get off the plane that you could think about this with. Open Doors USA says that 360 million Christians in the world live in a place where it is dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. One in seven Christians in the world. If our church of about 200 people represented the uh, total Christian population of the world, that would mean 30 of us, 30 of us live in a place where it is dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. What, what do you say? I want to, over the next several weeks, starting today, I want to suggest to you that you could serve those brothers and sisters well by opening your Bibles to the book of Nahum and walking through what this Old Testament prophet says. We're returning this morning to our normal practice of walking systematically through books of the Bible. We alternate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We finished Matthew earlier this year, and now here we come to the little prophets of Nahum and Zephaniah. And since we're beginning a new book, some of you, if you've been around long enough, know what to expect. You know to expect that some chart that looks like this is going to show up. Um, Here it is, an outline of the book of Nahum and an outline of the book of Zephaniah you'll see that these books only have three chapters. They're short books. We're going to, Lord willing, as we move through them over the next six weeks, walk through a chapter at a time, roughly, uh, these books. So you'll see that. And then the other thing that you'll notice um, that you, you are used to if you've been around for a while is what I'm going to do this morning, introduce you to the book of Nahum and Zechariah. This is going to be a little bit more of a lecture than a sermon, but my goal is to orient you to these books and help you prepare, get ready, as we're going to read and study the content of these uh, fine Old Testament prophets that are probably less familiar to us than most of the rest of the New Testament. Let's start with the book of Nahum, shall we? We'll start with Nahum. And you should know that you probably know more about Nahum than you actually think because you should think about Nahum and his association with another Old Testament prophet, Jonah. Nahum and Jonah. Nahum and is the counterpoint of Jonah. Both of them focus on the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Let's talk about how these things worked out. We don't know exactly when Jonah was alive, but uh, let's imagine a good guess would be 800 BC or so, 800 years before Christ. And um, God sent Jonah to the city of Nineveh, and uh, Nineveh is close to the modern day city of Mosul in Iraq. That's where the ruins of Nineveh are. There's been a substantial excavation there, um, but you recognize the name Mosul probably from some of uh, news coverage. God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and what? Jonah did not want to go. If you knew what Jonah knew about the Assyrians, you wouldn't want to go either. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was the first great empire of the world, and the Assyrians were a cruel and violent and vicious people. They reveled in their cruelty. Let's talk about Assyrian cruelty for just a minute. I know we're not very far into the book of Nahum, but look at Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. Nahum 3, 19. God speaks to the Ninevites and he says, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? 
Do you remember Jonah? Jonah ends with a question God asked the prophet, shall I not have compassion on these people? That's the question at the end of Jonah. Here's the question at the end of, of Nahum, who has not felt your endless cruelty? Jonah's the question of compassion. Nahum's question is the question of judgment. And the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were cruel. They practiced slavery. They reveled in enslaving people. In fact, look at Nahum 1.13. Here's a reference to it. God's speaking here to Judah, his people. I will break their yoke, that is the Assyrian yoke from your neck, and tear your shackles away. I'll set you free from the slavery that you've been in. Uh, the Ninevites were not environmentalists. They destroyed the lands that they conquered. Look at Nahum 2.2. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. As a Baptist, I'm not up on good winemaking. I don't really know how long it takes. I think it takes a while to get good vines so you can have fine wine. Uh, the Assyrians don't care. They're going to just destroy the land. Uh, they Look at, at chapter 3, verse 1, how it describes Nineveh. Woe, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. What would it say about Lancaster City if someone said, that city is a city of blood, Here's a, a way that you can think about it, perhaps. Some of you have been to the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., and you've toured the rotunda, and you've spent some time there looking at the art that's on display in the rotunda. You'll see lots of things. For example, you'll see the statue of Abraham Lincoln. It was done by a woman. You're going to see a picture of it right now. Abraham Lincoln, this statue was uh, carved by a, one woman, a young woman by the name of Vinnie Ream. She was 18 years old first teenager and first woman to receive a commission from the United States government for art. It's supposed to be one of the most lifelike, most accurate depictions of Abraham Lincoln in existence. It's in the Capitol. Nearby is a statue dedicated honoring the work of the early pioneers of the women's rights movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Susan B. Anthony. It's unfinished. This statue is on purpose because in 1920, when it was made, there was still work to do in women's rights. You'll see this famous painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. You'll see this painting of the resignation of George Washington. He laid down his commission when the Revolutionary War was over. You'll see this painting of the pilgrims as they're leaving England to sail for the new world. These are images, what? Of our values, freedom, honor, courage. We don't always live up to those values, but that's what we put on display and our public buildings are values. Well, we've done ex excavation in Nineveh and we found what public, what's on display in Assyrian public buildings. It's gruesome. Here's a, uh, well, just for a minute here. Think if you were to go into the rotunda of the United States Capitol and instead of pictures of Lincoln and uh, Washington and uh, um, uh, women and uh, uh, honor and freedom, think about what it would be like, what message we would be sending if instead you found a painting of a lynching from Mississippi in the 1950s. Or think about what you would, we would be communicating if there was a painting of the Wounded Knee Massacre, or a statue of Nathan Bedford, Bedford Forrest, the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, 
Or what if there was a painting of an abortion clinic? We're going to post this in the Capitol. Well, uh, we've done this excavation, as I said, in Nineveh, and we found the artwork that there was, uh, is on display. You won't be able to see it real well, but here's a relief, uh, a carving in one of the walls of the public buildings of Nineveh, and on the far right are two Assyrian soldiers, and they're leading or forcing to march ahead of them a group of Nubians that they have captured, and the two soldiers both have in their heads, hands heads of Nubians that they've chopped off. Or there's this uh, one, uh, they are, these are Assyrian soldiers who are, have impaled some of the victims, some of the people that they have conquered. That is, they have posted them on a, uh, a post. They, they drove a stake through their body and, and impaled them. Other Assyrian pictures show uh, carvings in public buildings, show them enslaving people, flaying their enemies, that is, uh, ripping the skin off of them. This is a nation that reveled in violence. Now, I contrasted our Capitol building with the capital of Nineveh. Now, I, please don't understand. What I am not saying is that we are far superior to the Ninevites and, and we, our art is different because of our uh, exemplary character. Uh, that would be the influence. Actually, the reason that our art in Washington is different than the art in Nineveh is because of the influence of Christianity. Tom Holland is a British atheist. He wrote a book a couple years ago called Dominion. It's a big old book where he argues persuasively that Western civilization was dramatically transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that's why our art is different than the Assyrians, not because we're inherently better than those men and women were. Uh, Jonah didn't want to go. I wouldn't want to go there either. Jonah didn't want to go. He was afraid that they would repent and be forgiven. And guess what? They did, and they were but it was a revival that did not last very long. That was about 800 BC. By 722 BC, um, about two generations later, the Assyrians had invaded. They'd come from uh, Nineveh and they invaded uh, God, the land of God's people and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and, and flattened the capital city of Samaria. Do you remember by this point in time, uh, the God's people had divided into two halves? So uh, there's the family of Abraham in Genesis. We start there. Then there's the tribes, the many tribes led by Moses in the book of Exodus. Then eventually we get to the kingdom led by King David. And, and by Jonah's day, that kingdom was divided into two halves. Israel was the name of the one in the north. Judah's the one in the south. And the Assyrians came and obliterated Israel. And they actually were a threat to Judah in the south. But King Hezekiah, that's a name we'll come back to in a little bit, King Hezekiah prayed and God delivered the southern kingdom of Judah from the Assyrians. But the Assyrians came and wiped them out. And Nahum preached a message to those in the north who had survived the uh, invasion and those in the south who were afraid still of Nineveh. And Nahum's main message is that God is against Nineveh. God is against Nineveh. Look at this. It says it twice, key verses. Chapter 2, verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. And then chapter 3, verse 5 of Nahum, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. 
This is a message that is supposed to comfort and encourage and strengthen these survivors. Now, I have to read it carefully. Think about this with me. Nahum is addressing the people of Nineveh. Actually, he, that's not quite right. He's speaking to the people of Nineveh in the presence of God's people, the survivors in Israel and Judah. So he is addressing the Ninevites and they get to listen in. So we don't read this book as if we're Ninevites receiving the message from Nahum, our condemnation. We read this book as the survivors who are listening in as Nahum is speaking to the Ninevites, but not actually there. Uh, The best illustration I can think of this in my lifetime uh, happened in the 80s when Ronald Reagan visited Berlin. Some of you remember this. Ronald Reagan was speaking to residents of West Berlin, free West Berlin, and the the, uh, Berlin Wall was behind him, and he was speaking to the people in Berlin, but he addressed Mikhail Gorbachev. He very famously said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And they cheered and cheered and cheered. Gorbachev wasn't there. I'm sure he was watching. But he wasn't there. He was, Reagan was addressing Gorbachev in the presence of the Berliners to comfort, encourage, and strengthen them. Nahum did not go to Nineveh like Jonah did. Nahum spoke to Nineveh in the presence of the people. We read this as a message for the survivors, for the oppressed, for the victims. And the message is this good news that God is a God of justice. He sees what has happened. He knows what has happened. He will ensure that justice is done. He is not going to let this endless cruelty go without end. He's going to make it stop. That's the message of comfort and encouragement. But it's a unique type of comfort. Actually, Nahum's name means comfort. That's what Nahum means. It's closely related to the word Nehemiah or the name Nehemiah. Nehemiah more explicitly says Yahweh comforts, means Yahweh comforts. Uh, Nahum means just comfort. Uh, And uh, it's a particular type of comfort. It means to, to soothe or to calm. Sometimes it can be positive. Sometimes it can be negative depending on the context. Let me show you a couple verses. So Isaiah 40 verse 1. You're familiar with this verse, some of you. Comfort, comfort my people. That's Nahum, Nahum, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. That's the word comfort there. He relented. He, he, his, his wrath against them was soothed. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Then Ezekiel 5.13. This is odd how this word is translated here. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. That's the word. That's Nahum right there. I will be comforted. I will be soothed in my wrath against them. And then he says, and when I, God says, and when I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. Nahum is a word of comfort, but it's a particular type of comfort. It's the comfort and encouragement and strength that comes from knowing that God is going to deal with your oppressor. 
that your victimization will not last forever, that God sees and God knows and God will ensure that justice will be done. Comfort, comfort for God's people. Nahum says some sharp things about God. Things about God that might actually cause you to question, raise questions about the wrath of God, questions that you might have about God's wrath. Look at, look at Nahum uh, 1, 2 and see how Nahum describes God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. What about loving your enemies? What about the verse that says God is love? Here it says, He's a jealous and avenging God, taking vengeance. Or skip down to verse six. Who can withstand God's indignation? Who can endure God's fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. We try to sing songs that match the message of the passages of scripture that we read and study. What in the world are we gonna sing next week when we read Nahum chapter one? Do you... Do you know, do a lot of songs come to your mind that talk about the wrath of God and his fierce commitment to justice? What, what, how are we supposed to understand Nahum in, context, in the context of the rest of the book of the Bible, the books of the Bible that talks about God's mercy and his kindness and his grace? And this just doesn't seem right. He wants to worship an angry God. I want to suggest to you, and I want to say this gently, that sometimes objections that rise to passages like this in the Bible, objections to passages like this, sometimes come from people who haven't suffered very much. People for whom following Jesus has not been that costly. Some of it's circumstantial. We live in the United States. The United States is not on the list, not high on the list at all of uh, World Watch organization, uh, countries where it's dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. And so it's circumstantial, I understand. But maybe, maybe your discomfort with Nahum chapter one comes from the fact that it's been too long since someone burned down your house because you're a follower of Jesus. Or too long since someone shot a relative of yours and killed them because you're, uh, they were a Christian. Maybe it's been too long since someone broke into the girls' school where your children were being educated and kidnapped all of the children there. One of the Americans who was trying to help uh, Luke and Wari's uh, friends escape from Afghanistan said that she was praying, praying desperately for these families, and she prayed that God would, if the Taliban found them, that they would just shoot them all and not just shoot the men because she was afraid of what ha would happen to the women and the girls if they were kept alive and kidnapped and taken into Taliban harems. Maybe you haven't been close enough to that or are not familiar enough with that for Nahum chapter one to bring you comfort. Here's the good news. This is good news for the oppressed and the victimized and the hurting. Now, just briefly here, an outline of the book of Nahum. Nahum chapter one is a description of God. This is a dangerous message for Nahum to deliver. Nahum is speaking about the great might of God and how he's gonna bring down the, uh, the, 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 
nation of the Assyrians, the capital Nineveh, and he's doing it at the time that the Assyrians are the most powerful nation on earth that no one can possibly imagine that the Assyrians would ever be defeated. And Nahum is standing up and saying, you know what? God is bigger than Nineveh. He's greater than Nineveh. This is why we pray on a global scale because all of the nations are but specks of dust before God. They're all drops in God's bucket. He's bigger than any nation, so we pray big. John Stott said he was on vacation once in Great Britain. He went into this tiny town and went to a small church and he uh, worshiped with the people and he concluded that the people there worship a village God who is only big enough to answer small village prayers because that's all the way they ever prayed was for small village things. They had a small village God. God is bigger than all the nations of the earth. (laughs) Oddly enough, C.H. Spurgeon used that same logic to say, to argue that we should pray for small things too. Everything is small in comparison to God, whether you're talking about the nation of Afghanistan or your car keys, they're all small things to God. Don't be afraid to pray for small things. Don't be afraid to pray for big things because everything is small in comparison to God. Chapter two is this vivid description of the overthrow of Nineveh. Uh, Nahum, as it were, takes us there. It happened in 612 BC. The Babylonians defeated it. But Nineveh, uh, uh, Nahum here pictures this city that way. And and here's some of his poetic language. Look at at chapter uh, two, verse 10. She, speaking of Nineveh, she is pillaged, plundered, stripped, Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Here's short, punchy language, vivid language. Uh, You look at uh, chapter 3, verse 2. The crack of whips, the clatter of heels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, uh, flashing swords and glittering spears. Again, here's this short, punchy, poetic language that Nahum uses to describe this. And then chapter 3 Why will God destroy the city of Nineveh? Because, well, it's sure and certain what's going to happen to them. That's Nahum. Now let's move on for just a few minutes more briefly to talk about uh, the book of Zephaniah. So skip over Habakkuk and come with me to Zephaniah next. Zephaniah and Nahum were partners of a sort. Um, They prophesied about the same time. Uh, The people are still under the thumb of the Assyrians But Zephaniah spoke directly to the people of Judah. If Nahum brings comfort because of their suffering, Zephaniah confronts the people because of their spiritual condition. Look at Zephaniah 1.1 and look what it says. We know a little bit more about Zephaniah than we do about Nahum. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. (laughs) Remember I said, Remember the name Hezekiah, we'll come back to it. There it is. During the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, Ammon, king of Judah. So Hezekiah, it appears here, is the great, great grandson of the king. He wasn't in the royal line, but he is, what? A distant cousin of the king, of Josiah. Uh, The history of this is told for us in 2 Kings chapter 21. So there's Hezekiah, who was king. And then his son, Manasseh, became king. And Manasseh was a vile man. He introduced into the nation of Israel cult prostitution. He introduced child sacrifice. He ruled for 55 years, and it was a terrible period of time. Uh, The word, the name Zephaniah means God hides. 
And there are some people who speculate that Zephaniah has this name because he's going to, as a child, need to be hidden from Manasseh and his bloody violence. Look at uh, 2 Kings uh, 21, 11, and what it says. Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. And then verse 16, moreover, Manasseh also shed in so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Oh, which is a city of blood now? Besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So there's Manasseh, then Amon. Amon ruled for two years, and then he was assassinated. And then Josiah. And during the reign of Josiah, they found the book of Deuteronomy. They found the Bible in the temple that they had ignored. And when they read it, their hearts broke. And God sent Zephaniah to the people to tell them, listen to this book that you have read and repent, repent, repent. And remember, actually Zephaniah does this different than Nahum. Remember that God promises to restore. Central to Zephaniah's prophecy is the concept of the day of the Lord the day of the Lord. Zephaniah uses this phrase uh, two dozen times in his book, in these three chapters. Look at chapter uh, one, verse seven. Be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. Verse eight, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. And then we'll skip down here to verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Verse 15, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. Now, some of you recognize this phrase, day of the Lord, because the apostles used this phrase to talk about the end times, that judgment time that is still in the future, the day of the Lord. But when you read the prophets, you come to understand that there are little days of the Lord, days when God comes in judgment and, and to deliver. There's day of the Lord junior, and then there's the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's hard to tell in Zephaniah if he's talking about the day of the Lord or just the junior ones. Uh, but that's a major uh, point in his prophecy. Again, just an outline. It's similar to, to Nahum. Chapter one, he focuses on God's character. Chapter two, God's authority over the nations. He rules over all the nations. And chapter three is this a prophecy about restoration. And really, it's quite beautiful. And some of you, if you've never read it, you're going to find a new favorite verse in the Old Testament. Look at Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Here is the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. That's what one Bible teacher said. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you but will rejoice over you with singing. Huh. What does it sound like when God sings? God will rejoice over you with singing. Some of you, it might make you think about those moments when you tucked your toddler into bed or held your baby, and didn't you sing to that little child? It almost, it almost has this romantic overtone to it. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. God says to his people, right? I love you truly, truly I do. 
what does it sound like when God sings? Some of you might sing to God with greater joy if you knew that it was actually a duet and not just our own solos. We'll come to that in a minute. We'll talk about that later. Here is how you know you understand the book of Zephaniah. You understand, you'll know when we finish Zephaniah, Lord willing, you'll understand, you know that you'll understand it by how you worship, how you worship. That will be the clue to understanding uh, that you know that you understand Zephaniah. All the way through the, Ze- uh, the book of Zephaniah, there's this temptation that people are facing to worship and trust in idols. And look what happens here in chapter 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. And then verse 14, sing, daughter Zion, Shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. Sing, sing. If you know God truly and trust him wholly, you will sing. It's interesting when we fight about worship, we fight about worship, we don't much at our church. When followers of Jesus fight about worship, what do they fight about? How we worship. What songs we sing? Some of you, um, someone will say, how was church today? Well, I didn't, we didn't sing any of my favorite songs. Ryan, it's his fault. <laughs> Zephaniah does speak to us about the how of worship. He, that's very important to him. But more important, actually, than the how of worship is the who of worship. Who are we worshiping? Once the who is settled, the how will take care of itself. But let's think, Zephaniah says, about the who, who we worship. Now, one last question to ask and answer before we finish. What's missing in Nahum and Zephaniah? Do you know what's missing in Nahum and Zephaniah? There are no references to the Messiah in Nahum, Habakkuk, or Zephaniah. It's striking, it's distinguishing from other prophets because other prophets often think about God's promise, the promise that he made starting in Genesis 3 that he would send a deliverer. Eventually we learn this deliverer will be a son of David and and he's going to reign and he's gonna rule and he's gonna protect God's people and unite God's people and restore God's people. This Messiah is gonna come and there's no mention of the Messiah in any of these books, unlike other prophets. Why? Well, uh, Palmer Robertson, I imagine I'll speak about, I'll quote him several times. As an Old Testament scholar, he says it's the Manasseh effect. Manasseh was such a terrible king, such a terrible son of David, that Nahum and Zephaniah could not even imagine that there would be a son of David who would do uh, what, for the people what they needed. They didn't write about the Messiah very much. Actually, they, all the, uh, the things that they attribute to, that other prophets attribute to the Messiah, Nahum and Zephaniah attribute to God himself directly, which actually helps us understand who Jesus is. Because when Jesus shows up in the Gospels and he does what Nahum and Zephaniah say he will do, uh, we understand that Jesus is more than just a son of David, that he is God in the flesh. That he's the one who rescues and purifies and delivers and unites and comforts and saves God's people. He's the one who's going to make everything right. 
He's the one who sings and who prompts us in turn to sing. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, Lord, we confess to you that, uh, oh, the pages in our Bible of Nahum and Zephaniah, they're awful white. We, we haven't written much in them. We haven't read much of them. We haven't studied much of them. And Lord, we confess that to you. But Lord, uh, we're not very good at reading poetry, most of us. We struggle with it. And uh, the history, we can't, we can't remember all the details and these names and these places in there. It's so strange. And we confess to you, sometimes these books are hard to read and hard to understand. But I, I am thankful to you that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And we're thankful that all of your word is inspired and is profitable for us. So teach us, oh, we come to you in faith asking you to do this. Teach us how valuable these books are as you embed the truths of them deeply in our minds and hearts. Help us, O oh Lord, and teach me during the week as I study so that I might feed your people well from your word and represent what it says clearly, carefully, uh, helpfully to them. We are your people, you care for us. So help us, uh, forgive us for our negligence and help us as we read these books. As we turn our attention to the table now, Lord, Help us to remember well what Christ has done for us. He, our great Savior, you who are rich in mercy. Help us to sing and reflect well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.